This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2017, Episode 12, discussing Maiden Abyss, Episode 12. Today's video will be examining the 12th episode, of course, but we'll also be looking at how we are set up for the 13th and final chapter of our story. I have no idea how they are going to wrap everything up without a double episode or something, and that's even with me believing that a lot will be left unresolved. However, we are going to especially look at how our goals and conflicts are arranged to come to a head and try to guess what our thematic patterns suggest about the events of the finale. This video took longer than anticipated because I ended up scrapping basically the whole theme section. Um, I just hated it, and it's too important of a moment in the series to feel like I hadn't put out a good product. Um, but I eventually rewrote it enough times to find something I really like, so I hope you enjoy it as well. So let us settle in and examine our penultimate episode. We'll start goals off with one of our main driving forces, Rico's goal of conquering the abyss. A second episode in which she has been absentee calls into question how much she influences the direction of our story in this final arc. Reg has largely been in the passenger seat for this series, but now at the end is the only one who can make decisions for the two of them. This may or may not have some crossover with his own unknown goal, but considering his ascent to the surface is what triggered all of the events which followed, I feel we should entertain the idea that Reg has been the force behind the story. He doesn't know his own purpose, and so has hitched himself to Rico's desire throughout everything we've experienced. The scenes the audience gets to see have pretty much been Rico's show, right? But in the context of the larger narrative, we might have to think of this whole series of events as arising from something that Reg set out to accomplish. Now that he might be the one making a critical decision in the finale, Maiden Abyss seems a lot less like the product of Rico's quest to conquer the Netherworld. Now, that doesn't mean that Rico won't suddenly wake up and take the reins again, but this goal of hers to conquer the Abyss is definitely not going to happen in the way she imagined it going into these last episodes. We might end up not abandoning this goal or thinking it is unfulfillable. Rather, we might have to change what the driving desire means for our characters. In the same way that Rico's hallucination about returning to the surface triumphant became meaningless to her without Reg, her idea of what conquering the abyss means might undergo a serious alteration as well. This potentially also intersects with one of Liza's goals, which was to allow Rico to choose her own path. We've discussed before that this goal wasn't really possible in a pure sense, as Rico knowing her heritage and being trained as a cave raider in the orphanage made her pursuit of her mother pretty inevitable. But at the very least, it seems that when and in what manner Rico followed after Liza would be of her choosing. 
This change at the end, where only Reg is in a position to steer their course, calls the success of Liza's goal even more into question. Now, because Reg can't remember what he set out to do, he has largely been driven by only two things figure out his past and past goal, and to protect Rico. Lately, Rico's injury has focused him entirely on this protection goal, even though the intrusive memory last time reminded him of the other quest. This time, the drive to protect Rico has Reg focused on a way to avoid the Curse of the Abyss. Reg suspects, correctly, that Nanachi has some understanding of the curse. So desperate is he to find some way to avoid a repeat of Episode 10's disaster that he tells Nanachi he would do anything for her if she will share what she knows. Little did he realize what kind of favor Nanachi would ask. We'll talk more about this request of hers throughout the other sections. I just wanted to point out that Reg's single-mindedness about protecting Rico is what led him into the situation. We did finally get some movement on a goal of Rico's from way back, which was to communicate with the surface. As near as I can tell, there hasn't been any attempt before now. No sending of mail balloons, or leaving letters with Ozen, or anything of the sort. This time, however, Reg has the wherewithal to ask the Black Whistle he saved to be his messenger pigeon. Now, as Nanachi points out, this connects Reg's existence and presence in the Abyss to Leader, potentially causing trouble for one or both of them. He even witnessed the use of Incinerator. But I understand Reg's thought process here. An older Black Whistle that is in debt to him is probably more reliable and private than sending messages back blindly. They owe it to Nato and Shigi and Leader to assuage their fears as best they can, and there's always that chance that they may be able to help them in the uncertain future. But the guy did see Incinerator in action, which may have consequences eventually, though I doubt it will matter in the time we have left for this season. I spoke last time about how I didn't get any sense of goals from Nanachi, that there wasn't something she obviously wanted or was pursuing. I even specifically mentioned that she was not trying to save Miti, believing her state to be irreversible. This time, Nanachi first expresses something she wants, for one of them to kill Miti. I thought last time that Nanachi's statements about how cave raiders usually handle hollows implied judgment on her part that she disagreed with what they did, and this informed her opinion of them. Maybe that is how she started out. After all, that final scene shows her carrying Miti away in a manner that implies they are escaping. She would hardly have bothered to do so, or strive to keep them alive and hidden, if she always meant to put Miti down. Somewhere along the line, she must have changed her mind. We don't get any reason why she feels this way now, though. Maybe she needs to leave or do something, and can't bear leaving Miti alone and helpless. Maybe she's decided that Miti's existence is torturous, and Nanachi has been keeping her alive for her own selfish reasons, but realizes she needs to put a stop to it. I certainly don't think Nanachi suddenly doesn't care about her. The whole reason she is asking Reg to do the deed is because she can't square herself up to do it herself. This creates a new conflict for Reg, though, so we'll address that in a moment. Lastly, and this is really an aside to the main narrative, but Leader's driving goal of protecting the children under his charge is what that whole opening bit is about. Children dying in the city, or dying mysteriously, does not appear to be the kind of thing people care about in general. Perched on the edge of the Abyssal Mall as they are, where death is constant and plentiful, there is an inevitable cheapening of life in the minds of the residents. A certain amount of indifference to mortality is necessary to exist here with your sanity intact. Thus, for Leader to seek out someone, anyone, 
with possible medical understanding to examine Kiwi means that this is not an incidental goal for him. They've lost other children, and he's trying to put the pieces together about what is happening and how to stop it. He is not indifferent to the well-being of the children. As he was Liza's apprentice at one time, one wonders if he inherited such a disposition from her. After all, he was obviously inspired and moved by the lengths she underwent to bring Rico up from the depths. I get the feeling that all this effort on Kiwi's behalf is beyond the normal scope of what is expected of him. While it seems there is little he could do to aid Reg and Rico in the current situation, the fact that we're reminded of this aspect of him in the same episode that Reg sends a message to him may be no coincidence at all. Moving right into conflicts, we'll stay with the surface part of our story. Long ago, we made birthday death rumors a conflict. I figured that Nato and Reg mentioning it separately and then connecting it to Kiwi's birthday meant that it would come back into our story. However, we did not end up with an A plot and B plot, and so a lot of our conflicts and goals concerning the surface world appeared as though they would not actually figure into our story. In the specific case of the birthday rumors, we knew that Kiwi's birthday was the day after tomorrow, so two days after Reg and Rico descended. But then we see Nato, Shiggy, and a perfectly healthy Kiwi discussing Reg and Rico's progress, with Shiggy guessing that they were at the Great Fault based on the time elapsed. Well, considering they were on the second level for 10 days for the survival training alone, we knew that Kiwi's birthday had come and gone, and so we guessed that there must be nothing to said rumors. Then, this episode begins with him in a bad state, along with us learning that today is his birthday. That means either that there was something wonky with the translation of his original birthday date, or it means that our opening scene is in the past. Regardless of why, having this disconnected scene in an episode called The True Nature of the Curse means that we are supposed to associate the two concepts together. This is especially clear when he recovers simply by virtue of being removed from the island that contains the abyss. For the purposes of our conflict, we know that Kiwi is safe now, but the conversation leader has with our visiting pharmacist casts the net of this conflict much wider. Several children have died throughout the city, apparently always on their birthdays. What's more, this is a new development. The birthday-specific nature of the calamity eliminates any notion of it merely being some kind of normal epidemic. This must be something beyond normal understanding, and in the city of Orth, that means that the mystery illness comes from the abyss. The fact that this is a new problem suggests something about the abyss is changing or is strengthening in potency. The idea that the curse is evolving or growing really makes one wonder if the abyss is undergoing some large-scale change of its own. As part of a natural cycle? As a result of someone's actions? Suddenly my pondering about whether there is any significance to the 2,000-year increments seems relevant again. We don't have any reason to suspect a specific cause, but I think it's a fair bet that something is changing. This could be nothing, or it could be an existential threat to Orth itself. So the other white whistles, we got just a little bit more filling in of the history between Nanachi, Miti, and Bonaruda. As I mentioned, the scene at the end implies an escape, and Nanachi's words to Miti suggest that she has grown tired of whatever he is doing, and so she is absconding with Miti in hopes of figuring something out. I'm assuming the he in this case is Bonderuda. Considering our brief scene before that mentioned experiments, as well as the unusual room that serves as setting, I think we can conclude that some kind of experimentation is being carried out on hollows in that facility by Bonderuda. 
Maybe there are more experimental subjects, maybe it's not just von Ruda, but at the very least, those things are happening. Either way, it seems Nanachi and Miti are fugitives of a sort, something they have in common with Reg and Rika. It occurs to me that this could be the sole way that Bondaruda comes into the story, as we are not headed towards some final resolution. A lot of Nanachi's behavior is informed by whatever happened to her under his influence, and that's besides the specific scenario that she and Miti exist in. Next, there was a conflict we added a long time ago that I think is worth bringing up again, even though we haven't had much cause to mention it since. This is the conflict that their assumptions or goals may need questioning. The specific instance we referred to back then was the revelation that the letter Rico thought was from Liza was nothing of the sort. It's not her handwriting, it's not the kind of thing she would write. Rico had been content to work her way to White Whistle the normal way. And yet, Reg's appearance, combined with the letter she thought was to her, accelerated her timetable. She went into the abyss before she was qualified because of an assumption that was completely false. The whole journey downward was kicked off based on misinformation in the case of the letter, and missing information in the case of Reg's past or purpose. So, right now, staring down our finale, which assumptions or goals especially look like they might be leading us into disaster? The audience now knows that Nanachi has a history with Bondaruda that could spell trouble, yet Reg and Rico neither know nor suspect as much. This is what is known as dramatic irony, where the audience has intentionally been given information that the characters do not have in order to increase the tension of watching them act in ignorance. We understand the significance of what is happening or being said, while the parties actually involved do not. There is also a minor one in the form of the necklace, as it appears that Reg doesn't know that Rico picked it up long ago, and it's suggested that the necklace may prompt a recovering of another memory from him. Thus, we as an audience will perk up an attention when either Bondaruda or the necklace comes up in our next episode, as we know something that Reg and Rico do not. Beyond that, though, where they made sure the audience is more in the know, are there any assumptions that Reg and Rico have made that we should stop assuming are correct? For example, what about the idea that White Whistles are heroes? Ozen was ultimately helpful, but not exactly heroic, while Bondaruda seems like he might be a literal monster. Should we assume that Liza may turn out to be unscrupulous as well? That this fantasy folk hero version of her that we have gotten through the lens of Rico and everyone else is actually not so heroic? Alongside that, how about the notion of the guild as neutral or benevolent? There might be some truly awful things going on in the Abyss with their blessing. We've interpreted the orphan's apprehension around guild officials as part of a general distrust of authority, going hand in hand with our world of children viewpoint. But what if that unease is being invoked in the audience for another reason? We are all also assuming that Reg is immune to the curse and that his body can withstand almost infinite punishment. That would be a terrible thing to suddenly be wrong about. And then, of course, they are still assuming Liza is alive and is expecting them. And they can even reach her if these things are true. I realize that this is the assumption that the whole series is founded on, but the number of things we don't know is way larger than the number of things we do. There's probably very little we should feel absolutely certain about going into this last episode. Finally, as we mentioned in Goals, we have a new conflict thanks to Nanachi's request, which I am calling the Miti Problem. We'll talk more about this in theme, but the conflict is a war between Reg's nature and Reg's promise. 
I can't believe he would assent to killing Miti with no quibble or debate, but Nanachi revealed information that she didn't really want to reveal. Is it more disagreeable to Reg to break his word, or more disagreeable to kill an innocent regardless of the circumstance? And what are the possible repercussions if he refuses, considering a hostile Nanachi could become a threat to Riko? Not to mention the potential gain of having someone as advanced in abyssal survival as Nanachi go with them, something that can probably only happen if Miti is no longer around. In fact, it is Reg saying he wishes she would come with them that prompts her to ask for the favor in the first place. This is the conflict we are left off on, and it seems it will be the first thing that must be resolved in our finale. Kill Miti, refuse to kill Miti, save Miti, or convince Nanachi that there may be a way to cure Miti. These seem like the only options, and some may not be possible, yet all would complicate the situation. This is going to be a really nice crucible to kick things off next time, as it will bring our characterizations and goals and themes to the same critical moment, and will reveal for us which values or priorities are ascendant in our characters. I think this is really excellent structuring on the part of our creators, though I would have been happier if such a critical moment had happened at the beginning of this episode to give us a two-part finale. Still, it's a good sign to me about what our impending finale will have in store. So in characterization, we once again have an absentee Rico. Her sole contribution to the episode is the bizarre dream she is having, but it doesn't tell me anything about her character. So we really only have Reg and Nanachi to discuss again. There's very little new characterization of Reg, I think. We discussed the enthusiasm he had to learn more about the curse in order to protect Rico, and the offer to do whatever Nanachi wants in return has uh, come back to bite him in an unexpected way. This is pretty in line with the reckless decision-making we pointed out last time. We also got a very literal example of Reg excelling when he follows orders when he receives live cues from Nanachi in a rematch with the Orb Piercer. Oddly enough, the nature of the curse and the way it ripples intent means that it is actually adventitious to surrender your decision-making to someone else. Reg has been practicing deferring his autonomy the whole series, and suddenly it's an advantage rather than a hindrance. I absolutely never saw that coming. I don't want to make too much of this, but this might have far-reaching thematic resonance depending on our finale, so we might come back to it next time. The real new development, I think, is Reg's interaction with the Orb Piercer. We've seen Reg use Incinerator several times at this point, right? But it's always been defensively. It's always been because he believed in imminent peril to himself or Rico. This is also the circumstance in which he has reached for the Blaze Reap, both against the Crimson Splitjaw and when he hoped to use it against the Orb Piercer the first time. Reg has killed Creatures of the Abyss for survival. He and Rico have done the same when it came to hunting, whether fishing or trapping the weird hippo thing, and presumably with the Neritantans as well. This fight with the Orb Piercer is none of that. They specifically set out to let Reg see the effect of the Curse of the Abyss by picking a fight with a creature that could sense his intention. That their timing ends up saving a Black Whistle is incidental. They set up the communicator with this purpose from the beginning. What's more, when Reg has the bull by the horns, he summons up images of Rico's injury and funnels a rage at her suffering into his attack. He isn't trying to kill for protection or food, out of need or fear. This attack comes from a place of anger. He is driven by a sense of revenge. We've certainly seen Reg get upset before, and in pretty much every case, it's because of Rico. 
Whether it's intervening during Ozen's psychological assault, blasting corpse weepers, or shouting at Nanachi, Reg only seems capable of becoming confrontational if Riko is concerned. If you watched my long speculation from last time, I can see how this might even be instinctual. Yet this instance is the first time it wasn't reactionary. They hunted down the orb piercer on purpose, and Reg chose the overkill method of incinerator at point blank to match the intensity of the destructiveness that he was feeling. This is a much more aggressive Reg than we are used to seeing, though it is still linked to Rico as all of his emotional responses seem to be. Now Nanachi gets a lot more context this time. She shows her own aggressive streak during the orb piercer encounter, encouraging Reg's violence with a tone and expression that imply that she takes some delight in the exercise. I would also assume that it was her idea to hunt the orb piercer in the first place, though removing it from her hunting ground is a more practical purpose than Reg's revenge. Still, I think she enjoyed the whole exchange, and she did not seem concerned at all for Reg's well-being. Maybe she simply realizes more about him than she has put to words, but her plan pretty much counted on him being in position to be stabbed repeatedly. The only distress or surprise she sows at all is from the use of Incinerator, though we'll have more to say about that later on. The other thing from the encounter to note is the way she tries to keep Reg from interacting with the Black Whistle. She seems to know that Reg will want to try to save the guy, but she wants him to flee right afterwards, saying that once Orby is dispatched, cave raiders pose the greatest threat to them. Our guess last time about her low opinion of cave raiders appear to be on the mark, but it's coupled with fear. Nanashi fears being discovered, and so the way she monitored Reg and Rico in episode 10 while remaining hidden is probably not an isolated event. Once Reg returns to her, she is mostly okay with his disobedience since he didn't mention her. However, she still suggests that he might be creating trouble for the guy at the orphanage. Thus, fundamentally, we can infer that she does not trust cave raiders at all. Now, we did get the little scene at the end to fill in a bit of her backstory, but even without that, I think that this distrust of hers means we can dispense with the notion that she was once a cave raider, or part of a cave raiding group. It may be that her only experience with cave raiders is Bondaruda, or maybe others working with him, we don't know. The important thing to take away from this observation is that Nanachi helped Reg and Rico in spite of this. While she recognizes that Reg is an anomaly, we know that she saw Liza's whistle before making herself known to them. She overcame fear and prejudice to help complete strangers, in spite of how inured to death she must be. Last episode showed us that Nanachi was capable of empathy. This episode shows us that she can be empathetic even when she knows it might be a risk to herself. We get an even further example of her humanity when Reg is trying to discern more about her past. Reg wants to know what she and Miti were before they became Hollows, but Nanachi resists, asking if he really wants to ask that. She says that if he does, he will end up wanting to help them. This matches what we said about Nanachi keeping Reg at arm's length emotionally. We had no sense of motive for this behavior before, and even suppose that it could be because she knows Reg and Rico are either going to be doomed or on their way shortly. But in light of this episode, it actually seems more like compassion. Nanachi knows the truth of her awful situation, and she knows that Reg is the kind of person to rush to help others thoughtlessly. She is sparing Reg and Rico from whatever would be required, even if it might help her. Now, there may be more to it than simple charity, and her request to Reg at the end of the episode might be exactly the kind of help she didn't want to ask for. 
but I think we can interpret Nanachi's bratty and standoffish behavior as something other than indifference or a caustic personality. In fact, she can be endearing, as in the scene immediately after her deflection about her past. Her cooking is comically bad, but the humor is paired with a bit of sorrow. This is not Nanachi the delusional chef, but rather someone who has no frame of reference because they've never had any tasty food. The way she gets defensive and embarrassed is a chink in the front she has put up against Reg from the start. It's a hint of the vulnerable person behind the personality she projects. That gets one final reinforcement at the end. I already mentioned that Nanachi must care about Miti to need to ask someone else to put her down. There is an emotional attachment there, and Nanachi can't bring herself to do it even if she thinks it's the right move. Whether she can't stomach having her blood on her hands, or can't bear the idea of Miti believing she's been betrayed, we don't know. Maybe she has thought of it before and lost her nerve. Whatever it is, it paints Nanachi as a complex emotional being, full of conflicting motivations, and they have managed to do so in just two episodes. Bravo. In world building, there is quite a lot. Uh, we will go roughly sequentially. We get our biggest peek at the outside world in the pre-credits scene involving Leader and Kiwi and the pharmacist. It's still not much of a peek, but we get some interesting details. First of all, just the idea that a medical ship and a caravan is potentially a better source of treatment than the entire settlement of Orth makes one wonder about how it stacks up against the rest of the world. I realize that Leader's logic is that world travelers are more likely to have run up against something out of the ordinary than the stationary citizens of Orth, but even looking at the ships in the fleet raises some questions for me. Like, these are relatively modern looking ships, if a bit weathered. At the very least, they seem like they emerge from civilizations more developed than Orth. Orth is full of bricks and beams and clockwork, and carts pulled by beasts of burden. There is electricity, but basically no modern construction or mechanisms in sight. The city is quite old, I realize, but the situation of the Abyss and its riches gave me the impression that Orth might be advanced compared to the outside. Relics do some impossible things and are incredibly valuable. Yet this caravan fleet is the product of massive industrial shipyards and steel making and so on. A lot of the look of the ships and even some elements in Orth give me an impression of late 19th or early 20th century tech, where the mixing between older and newer materials was a lot more piecemeal. There is also a harbor, but no airport. In this respect, and looking at the differences between them, Orth seems a lot like a remote mining colony in the midpoint of the Industrial Revolution. Its production is valuable enough to justify a large ocean-going caravan, yet is remote enough to lag behind the outside world in infrastructure development. I don't know that any of that changes our specific narrative, but it colors in our setting a little more in my mind. Truthfully, this story doesn't work if it is set too far out of this rough technological era. Go too far backward, and ocean-going commerce is too impractical. Go too far forward, and the curse will be rendered meaningless once exploration is taken over by robotics and drones, as Reg himself rather demonstrates. Anyway, inside the actual abyss, we get some more information about both the curse and our current circumstances. The first bits of new information are about Miti. I said last time that her crouching on Rico didn't feel like a conflict, but rather might lead to a revelation about her or Rico this time. This has turned out to be so. We learn three interesting things, two of which are stated directly. 
One is the fact that Miti's body can produce antidote against poison. It seems to do so automatically, and it makes me wonder if this is some kind of survival mechanism that hollows acquire by virtue of their infection with the curse. This by itself seems like the kind of thing someone would experiment on hollows to learn or to profit from. One might even create hollows in the first place if this was one of the side effects, unless the experiments themselves lead to this ability. Now, maybe this will be clarified later on. The second thing we learn about Miti is that she is or was a girl roughly Rico's age. We guess that she was young based on that tiny flashback last time, but uh, now we know for sure how young. The last thing we learn is in the subtext of what Nanachi is saying about why Reg shouldn't worry about her behavior. Nanachi says that Miti wouldn't attack humans, and also that she wouldn't eat the water shrooms, that she isn't one to treat others so cruelly. She also proclaims that Miti is emotionally attached to Riko, something she doesn't usually do to visitors. All of these things together suggest something, something that Nanachi might not even consciously realize, and that is that Miti is actually not devoid of intelligence or personality like she said last time. Even though Miti is nonverbal, she seems to get agitated or excited at various points, and even seems to shrink from Reg's initial outburst. She's obviously not the same as when Nanachi knew her before, but I think some semblance of that person is still inside, and Nanachi just doesn't fully grasp it. Next up is the big information reveal, which is all of Nanachi's insight to the nature of the curse. She demonstrates via use of a grade 3 relic called Fog Weave, which is just a super thin bit of cloth. Not much else to say about this relic, except one has to wonder what its original purpose might have been. It's strong for its thinness, but is nearly transparent. Cloth usually has some opaqueness to it, right? Like, that's often the point. Anyway, she characterizes the curse as a very floaty thing that reacts to movement and consciousness in a way that recalls currents in the air or water. As it is piled layer on layer, it is in a sense thicker the deeper you get. This means that it reacts more strongly when disturbed, and the symptoms it invokes become stronger as well. Long ago, I compared descending in the abyss to diving in the ocean, in that the problem comes from resurfacing rather than from traveling downward. In diving, this is the bends, and in the abyss, the curse. Much like the ocean, the curse appears to get denser and thicker as one descends, as all the layers above it are pressing down. However, since you can't feel it, or usually even see it, this thickening is not obvious. Only the severity of symptoms from ascending indicate the change in a way that people can actually discern. The thickness and the way it indicates intent also means that deeper abyssal creatures can successively predict the future actions of those whose consciousness disturb the curse. Such creatures have developed sense organs specifically for seeing the curse, and we get a demonstration of this when they take on the orb piercer. This is actually what accounts for the orb piercer knowing that they were thinking of trying to get Blaze Reap, as well as the intuition that Rico mentions is common among the deep dwellers. There's two things I find interesting about this, aside from the fact that it's, well, a pretty interesting bit of world building. One is that Nanashi can see it, other deep abyss creatures can see it, and yet cave raiders can't see it. That is, humans and maybe all surface dwellers can't see it. Nanachi being able to see it implies once again that she is not really a hollow, but is a creature of the abyss. I don't know what that means exactly, or maybe whatever happens to those who become hollows also grants them this type of eyesight. However, if Miti's ability to create antidotes in her blood came from turning into a hollow, then it stands to reason that Nanachi's own body could do the same thing. 
I'm assuming that it does it, else she wouldn't subject Midi to that. Anyway, the point is that Nanachi being able to see the curse implies that she comes from the Abyss originally, and would be subjected to the same evolutionary pressure that produced the Orb Piercer's ability to sense the curse's flow. If that line of thinking is correct, then another observation becomes intriguing as well. Reg can't see the curse, which implies that he does not originate in the Abyss, or at least some essential part of him does not. One might think that being a robot is perhaps the issue here, that it is a type of biological sense organ that allows detection, and robots simply can't replicate that. He's just a mechanical doll, right? Well, here is the other thing I find interesting. Reg's consciousness disturbs the curse. Nanachi says the curse reacts to living things, right? And we see it reacting to Reg's thoughts, both visually when they bait the orb piercer, and by implication when the orb piercer previously read his intention concerning Blaze Reap. So Reg can't see the curse, but the curse reacts to him. Maybe this is a false dichotomy on my part, but doesn't that imply that he is a living thing from the surface world, not some synthetic thing from the abyss? The only inconsistency is how he seems to be immune to the curse's negative effects, but he clearly interacts with it, or else the whole trick with Orbi wouldn't have worked out. Curious, no? The last thing Nanashi reveals about the curse is that it comes from the force field. I feel like some relationship was already implied, but the wording she uses is interesting. She talks about it carrying sunlight to the depths while also obscuring them, and that it guards the netherworld and the order within it. She even calls it the blood of the abyss. All of this implies intention on the part of the force field or whatever generates it. Like, I don't get the sense of natural phenomena here, but some original purpose that necessitated creating the force field for whatever benefit it creates. There is something down at the bottom of this hole for which all this effort was justified. Now, whether something existed originally and the force field makes it usable, or the force field itself was the point, and this was the only place suitable, who knows. Nanachi says something by way of explanation that could be related. She describes the flow of the curse as being similar to inverted thorns. You can get in, but you can't get out. That is, it's like a trap for catching prey. Is this just a useful analogy, or is it disturbingly close to the actual purpose? Whatever is going on, it appears to tie in to the strange city or facility we see at the very end. This is another of those things that shows up ever so briefly in the opening credits, which is the only place we can see the buildings and the spinning ring-shaped wall. It's still hard to tell exactly what is going on, but there is a sound of rushing water, what appears to be waterfalls flowing off a central disk, a luminescent shaft that extends upwards against an indistinct background, and a central beam of light that seems to either be creating the disk or being created by it. The suspended shaft above the disk has ripples like water, and even seems to be flowing in a circle. The shaft reminds me a lot of the Great Fault, that enormous but regular hole through the center of the abyss. This is especially curious in light of seeing and hearing all the water around this disk when we remember the way that there was an actual ship stuck into the side of the Great Fault's walls. In fact, the brief look at the city, or whatever it is in the credits, looks a lot like the wide-angle shots of Orth, at least in the way they render the buildings. It's almost like someone cut a giant circle out of the middle of Orth and then plunged it miles into the earth, putting it at the edge of some vast underground lake. A lot of mystery still remains about the place, but what we learn from this scene is that this is apparently where Nanachi and Miti came from. 
It seems that Nanashi initiated a jailbreak of sorts, carrying Miti out and away from whatever was going on. Assuming that this links to Bonneruda, that room we saw before, and the experiments, I think we were probably on target in suggesting that some kind of shenanigans are going on deeper in the abyss. This weird disc waterfall city has to be further below them. How much further? We all know, but it's possible it is linked to the reference that Ozen makes to a mysterious ring of the seventh layer that only a few white whistles are said to have seen. If we're in the ballpark at all about what's going on down there, then it would follow that the place is incredibly remote and so largely unmonitored. The very last thing I want to point out is that Nanachi was surprised by Incinerator. In fact, her reaction seems to go beyond surprise. Discovering that Reg was wielding some powerful weapon might startle her at first, but the way she sits down, as though the wind was knocked out of her, makes me think there is more to this than just being caught off guard. I'll talk more about that and our strange Ring City in speculation. In theme, let's begin with the ends versus means category, which has a couple things I would put under it. The biggest is what I already alluded to in Conflicts, which is the choice that has presented itself to Reg right at the end of our episode. For some time now, we have observed how Reg and Rico are often choosing between the results that they want and the steps necessary to achieve it, or at least the steps that occur to them. Most often in stories where this thematic pattern is present, you will have multiple characters pursuing the same ends, but trying to do so by different means. However, you sometimes have the reverse of this, where characters are employing the same means, but toward different ends. This was the situation with breaking Rico's arm in preparation to amputate it. The end result Reg wanted was saving Rico, even if it meant doing something terribly stressful for both of them while Rico was encouraging this awful procedure toward an end result of continuing to be a cave raider. Ends versus means tension in a story means that sometimes characters share a path towards different destinations, while other times characters take different paths towards the same destination. Why they would find themselves in one pattern or the other comes down to differences in character and goal, and frequently their paths will split around some line in the sand about which they have different ethics or temperaments. So then, here we are, perched on the cusp of Reg having to make a terrible choice, and for now, he is facing that choice alone. I'll have something to say in speculation about how I think it could change further, but for now, Reg has to weigh the ends that he values, such as keeping his word to Nanachi, repaying her for saving them, enlisting her aid for the journey, and continuing to protect Rico, all that against the means that she has asked of him. Namely, putting down someone who, to Reg's mind, is probably a complete innocent. It's fascinating to me to have left this as the cliffhanger going into the finale. It elevates the tension Reg is experiencing to a prominent place in the series as a whole. He has two options which both may seem wrong to him. Does he choose the less disagreeable means, or does he take the third option and reconsider his ends? Is this, in fact, the question that is presented to every person who decides to descend into the abyss? Is this possibly about the tension between a promise or a goal and the realities necessary to see it through? That's just a slight permutation of the normal ends versus means tension. Rico has her own goals and vows that she has stated aloud and built an identity around, and the prospect of being permanently disfigured didn't make her flinch. But what if the choice wasn't between giving up and suffering harm, but between giving up and causing harm? What would she do? What would Reg do? 
Even for the sake of saving Rico's life, he struggled with the task of breaking and severing her arm. Does this mean he's basically too soft for the Abyss, despite being physically more resilient than anyone? It's quite the interesting contrast. What is just as interesting in all this is the grayness of the morality in question. Nanachi isn't asking Reg to put down Miti out of greed or malice. I don't think it's even out of pragmatism. This is conjecture on my part, but I think Nanachi thinks of this as mercy, similar to putting down a beloved pet when their quality of life plummets too far. It may even be that she thinks cave raiders are used to this kind of thing and wouldn't be as upset by it as she would be. Hence, she might not think of what she's doing as enforcing an emotional burden on someone else. To use the pet analogy, it would be like having a veterinarian who is detached and professional and inured to euthanizing pets to be the one to put down your dog or cat rather than you doing it yourself. You aren't really inflicting psychological harm on the vet, you are deferring to their unique expertise and experience to spare yourself some of the anguish. Maybe Reg has a moral objection to killing Miti, but maybe Nanachi has a moral objection to letting her continue to live. Thus, we probably have a situation in which there are no bad actors. Everyone is aiming to do the right thing, and yet they may be at cross-purposes owing to different perspectives. They may have set us up with a microcosm of the entire issue that faces those who would brave the abyss. How many terrible choices are you able to face to keep going forward? Just in this one instance, we have a scenario without a clear right or wrong, moral or immoral choice. How many other such decisions would an abyss hopeful be able to face? How many times can one choose between compassion and pragmatism, between relics and teammates, between one's health and one's goal? Are the success stories of the abyss simply those who will always make some choice, no matter how terrible, so long as it propels them toward their goal? Is it the ultimate irony that white whistles are white, when surely the path to that success is soaked with blood? Meanwhile, red whistles are those who have only just dipped their feet into the abyss, and are therefore still largely innocents. I feel like an enormous amount of story patterns and tensions are contained in this ends versus means theme, and its representation in Reg's cliffhanger conflict. There is another aspect to this theme as well. Ends versus means can be reflected in a character's driving will. For example, Rico is driven by her goals, she is ends-focused, and so will entertain extraordinary means of pursuing what she wants. Meanwhile, Reg is largely rudderless thanks to his amnesia, hitching himself to Rico's drive most of the time. Because of this, he largely focuses on the means by which they conduct themselves and pursue what she wants. He doesn't want what she wants as badly as she does, and thus has a more measured perspective on what they do to follow their desires. This, too, might come to a head with this particular cliffhanger situation, at least if Rico wakes up in time to have input on the matter. We have a whole section of these analyses dedicated to tracking character goals, right? Because understanding what motivates characters and how that changes is a really effective way to track the progression of both narrative and characterization. However, some people are more goal-focused than others, and aspects of their character can potentially override whatever currently drives them. Seeing exactly where such a thing happens to a character is one of the most revealing moments about their inner selves. I suspect we are being led to just such a watershed moment, and I am pleased at how many other thematic patterns appear to be along for the ride. This includes another of our most dominant themes, the gravity of the unknown. 
Even if this idea had never occurred to us before now, this episode spells the concept out plainly. It begins after our pre-credit scenario involving Kiwi and the birthday sickness. The crisis over, our pharmacist goes above deck and is lost in thought over the unusual circumstance. This leads her to reflect on the abyss itself and how it exists as a kind of curse, as mysterious and deadly as whatever afflicted Kiwi. This is an aside, but this transition is kind of amazing. She turns to the abyss because of the wind picking up, which gives the abyss a type of supernatural impression, disturbing the air to draw attention toward itself. Her expression shifts in parallel with her shifted focus, from troubled to something a bit more serene. The abyss is a curse and a tremendously mysterious thing, but it's a known mystery. It's familiar. Its existence as a lodestone to human effort and sorrow is something that existed before she was born and will likely continue after she dies. Then, shifting away from her and toward the island culprit, her thoughts roll right into the opening narration, and the first few strains of music begin. This musical motif has been used primarily over very tense or threatening moments before now, and so the audience subconsciously shifts toward unease even as our pharmacist looks contented with the familiar. The audience is meant to feel a contrasting emotion to the character, meant to feel a bit anxious, and over this transition we have a narrative passage about longing. But longing is not being lauded as some enviable quality, some pillar of the indomitable human spirit. Matching the unease of the music, longing is described as being like poison, or like illness of being an inescapable force that catches you, a curse. And yet, adventurers in the great city of the pit are still willing victims. They accept all the consequences of this longing, as the idea of living with nothing to long for is a concept more terrifying than death. Now, the particular care they gave to this scene should tell us how important this theme is to our series, especially saving the birthday sickness scenario until now in order to put the two ideas together. But it actually gets reinforced again later in the episode when Nanachi is explaining the curse of the abyss to Reg. They are discussing the seemingly impossible situation of cave raiders dealing with creatures that can basically see the future without being able to see the curse themselves. As insurmountable as this task seems, cave raiders do it anyway. Nanachi's offer of explanation is simply that this is the way it is. There is no way to stop their longing. This longing, this insatiable drive, is so strong it becomes a type of power in its own right, allowing one to overcome what are otherwise impossibilities. Now, this episode is called The True Nature of the Curse, and we have these two sections that reflect one another while each discussing a type of curse. Our title, then, is referring to both ideas and is meant to guide us to link these concepts together. The literal curse that lies layer upon layer in the pit and causes terrible symptoms, and the curse of longing, the compulsion to seek out whatever it is that lies below. Both curses have the same effect. You are compelled to go ever deeper, to press forward, and to suffer if you try to turn back. The mystery of what you long for and what unknown qualities lie below draws you inexorably downward, as irresistible and constant as gravity itself. So here is what we have then, a direct link between the overwhelming longing that adventurers have for the abyss and the curse itself, and the impending character crisis initiated by Nanachi's request. Each of these ideas is given emphasis by the way this episode is structured. 
It's like our ends versus means theme and gravity of the unknown theme are being set up for a showdown of their own. In fact, the idea of conjoining or conflicting these themes bears out differently in our two main characters. Rico is essentially suffering from both curses. She has the insatiable longing to chase into the abyss, and she is currently suffering from the effects of the physical curse. She prioritizes the plunge downward over her own well-being, and there are any number of means she would probably entertain in pursuit of her ends. Reg, by contrast, is completely immune to the curse of the abyss, and he also is not consumed by a longing for what lies below. We don't yet know what his original goal was, but it compelled him to go up, not down. He surfaced in pursuit of something known, crawling up in the light of day. Once he recovers his memory, there may be no allure in the unknown for him at all. Even what allure remains does not consume him. The means by which he pursues his past are more important than whether or not he actually discovers it. So here we are with two characters who contrast in nearly every way, now also shouldering conflicting thematic burdens. Reg might as well be designed for success in the abyss, but wants no part of the heartless pragmatism it may demand. Heck, even the firing of his great weapon and all its destruction is not something he can do thoughtlessly. His personality is a complete mismatch for his physical capability. Meanwhile, Rico's willpower is a complete mismatch for her own frailty. A 12-year-old girl is simply not the hardiest of specimen, yet the curse of longing she is under is a force unto itself. Each of them can be stronger than the other depending on the context, and each has a different idea about where the line should be drawn for their decisions. Despite this, each is the staunchest ally the other has, and have both independently concluded that they could not have made it this far without the other. We should therefore feel no surprise at all to have our themes so intermixed and tangled. They are merely a reflection of the conflicting yet complementary mosaic that make up our two main characters. Next episode may provide some clarity on both theme and character, but I suspect they will turn out to be anything but simple. So rather than the normal what to watch for section today, I want to think of this instead as remaining mysteries. I feel pretty sure that our story does not fully resolve, and so I no longer expect every story thread will be addressed. Therefore, I want to simply compile the mysteries that I think still exist, whether they are explicitly mysterious in the show, or just questions that I feel have been suggested. First of all is a list of things that are missing or whose fate is known to be unclear. We've talked about several of these recently, but I just want to put them all together right here. We still have the missing star compass, given way too much screen time to be gone for good. We don't know the fate of Blaze Reap, though it might be recoverable now that the orb piercer has been driven away. We don't know the fate of Rico's notebook, even though they both assume it got incinerated. We don't know what happened to Rico's glasses, although that may be no mystery at all and simply isn't accounted for in the series continuity right now. There are also objects whose object or purpose are yet unknown. How Rico came upon something like the star compass and why it points to the bottom of the abyss is almost certainly significant, we just don't know why. The purpose of the necklace that Reg was carrying and Rico found seems likely to be revealed, assuming that Rico still has it. The message in Liza's notebook written on an indestructible relic also screams out for more details. Who wrote it? Who was it meant for? And why was it included among Liza's things? The same questions could be asked about Liza's whistle. If Liza is not actually dead, then I think using her whistle to lend legitimacy to both her notebook and the other message still makes sense, but then the question just becomes, 
why was that legitimacy important? There is also Reg's helmet and the occasional compass-like symbols that show up on it. He doesn't seem to need the helmet for anything specific, yet feels compelled to keep wearing it. Combine that with these symbols, and perhaps some vestigial memory of his knows that the helmet is useful. There are also character histories that are mysterious. Reg and Liza are the biggest of these, and unraveling them is the main force that moves our story. I don't think I need to spell that out. Additionally though, while we've gotten more pieces about Nanachi and Miti's history, it is still full of unknowns, exacerbated by the possibility that Nanachi hasn't told the whole truth. Bonderuda and whatever he has been up to is almost completely unknown, but there seems a lot of signs that we will collide with him next time, or at least with some situation that he is behind. There are some other missing character details, but the unknown aspects of these five are all in position to impact our finale. Now, that is a lot of ongoing mysteries that are specific to this one narrative. There are still all the background aspects that are mysterious. There's a thousand questions about the abyss itself, the why and how of the curse and the force field, the strange ring city at the bottom, the myriad relics whose purpose is unknown, and even the fate of the people who lived in the abyss before it was discovered. It's unreasonable to think most of these will be answered in just one episode, but our finale certainly does not lack for things it can answer for us. So let's guess about a few of them anyway. I won't restate my long speculation from last time, but I will say that nothing in episode 12 makes me feel that it is more or less likely. Nanachi's crisis and the request to Reg does give more reason for this whole Hollows thing, so that doesn't necessarily have to be related to it anymore. But we got pretty good evidence that there is a place where experiments are being performed on Hollows, so it seems even less far-fetched now, too. Related to this, of course, is our cliffhanger and how it might shake out. I went over the thematic showdown at length already, so all I want to add here is that I think there's a good chance that Riko ends up changing the situation. I haven't said anything about her weird fever dream yet, but I think this might be where it figures in. The dream seems a lot like a deep memory of her time inside the curse-repelling vessel, even to the point of showing her in a kind of unformed state as though reaching back to even before her birth. While the red eye staring in at her through what looks like an open wound is a disturbing image to the audience, Riko does not seem alarmed. In fact, she seems calmed in contrast to her whimpering just moments before. I'd wondered before if the circumstances of Riko's birth made her a kind of creature of the abyss herself. Since Miti has been changed by the curse, does that make them something of kindred spirits? Is this really why Miti seems emotionally attached to Riko, as Nanachi put it? Regardless of what exactly her dream symbolizes, I believe there is a good chance Riko wakes up with some insight into what is really going on with Miti. This could be tragic, with Riko revealing that Miti was still fully aware of everything, but doing so after Reg has already killed her. Or it could be a kind of last minute save, where something like that is revealed and makes Nanachi change her mind about the request. My long speculation from last time doesn't quite work if Hollows completely lose themselves, after all. I do still think Riko will be able to see the Curse of the Abyss, as we once again had a lot of focus on the fact that Cave Raiders can't see it. Her weird dream reminds us again that she was born down here, and the missing glasses are only required because of the effects of that curse on her. Now that Nanachi has given us a better description, and we've actually gotten a visual of the curse from the Orb Piercer's point of view, it's hard to imagine that it won't come into play in some way for our finale. 
Nanashi, for her part, seems to have been given a mystery of her own to ponder. Her reaction to Reg's use of incinerator was pure shock. Reg obviously didn't discuss it with her beforehand. Her emotional response might be the most unscripted moment we've seen from her. The question is, why is it shocking? Because she's never seen something with that kind of destructive power? Or because she has? I mean, Reg comes from the abyss. It's not impossible that he's fired this beam somewhere she could have seen it without knowing exactly who caused it. If Reg himself is the result of some experiments, he and Nanachi and Miti could all conceivably have been in that same facility at the same time. What if Reg broke himself out of such a place via incinerator, and that was actually what provided Nanachi her opportunity to jailbreak herself and Miti? I don't know if that is even possible with the timeline, but something like that would be consistent with Nanachi's reaction. Because she's not just shocked, right? She actually looks kind of thoughtful after she falls down in surprise. Could she be recalling some instance in the past where she had seen the beam of incinerator? Speaking of things Reg didn't tell her about, isn't he about to pass out? If Nanachi wasn't warned about what kind of weapon he was packing, then they definitely didn't have a conversation about the part where he goes unconscious shortly afterward. This actually reinforces how unusual Reg's attack on the orb piercer was. I think if he planned to use Incinerator from the beginning, then he would have given Nanachi a heads up. He didn't, which suggests that his attempt to annihilate the orb piercer came from the heat of his emotions in that moment. The deed is done now, though, and so one of two things will happen. He won't pass out, which just brings up all kinds of questions, so this seems like the less likely outcome. The other is that he does pass out, either right now or after they get back to her hideout. Either way, he will not have to make a decision about killing Miti immediately, and this also gives some time for Rico to wake up. The other thing it may enable is for Reg to recover another memory. It may be that simply going deeper into the abyss is why he has had a few moments of remembrance, and so who knows what kind of effect passing out this far down might have on him. Speaking of the hideout, I guess this is both mystery and speculation together, but what is the story with this place? Now that we've seen that Nanachi stole Miti away from that crazy city or facility, we know that she was not part of some cave raiding expedition that wandered too far. The hideout has lots of cave raiding equipment, including several purple and black whistles, and also has a lot of graves in its backyard. Were all of these things here before Nanachi found the place? That seems most likely. She said it took a while to find a place that's stable with so little of the curse present. That makes it a lot like the Seeker Camp, and is probably why the Seeker Camp exists where it does. It would make sense for cave raiders to have set up their own way station in such a place, right? Now that we know how Nanachi feels about cave raiders and the threat they pose to her, it doesn't seem like she would be sharing her shelter with any expeditions. So what is the history of this place? The graves are pretty overgrown, so perhaps it's a long forgotten outpost. If so, then its past may not make any impact on our story at all. But if that's so, why create such a robust setting and keep us in it for more than two episodes? Right at the end, we are teased with another mysterious setting, the city with the beam of light. I spoke about it already, so I won't completely restate. From the opening credits, it looks like there are piers, as though there is traffic on that lake, or was, and ripples emanate out from the city. I'm not sure if that is from the spinning or from the waterfalls that come off of it. Of course, I don't know why it would spin at all. Also, and this may just be indistinct artwork, but doesn't it seem like the reflections on the water don't match up with the surface? 
Or are we supposed to be seeing partially through the water, and the dark and light patterns are actually what lies beneath? No idea what that implies, if it's intentional. Um, there is a lot that I can't even guess at, but I feel pretty confident that we are going to find out more about what is going on in that place, and it's not going to be pretty. I don't know if we have time for it to be a destination. Depending on what happens with Miti, Nanachi might spill the beans herself, or even direct their course towards it. If she does know something of Liza, or even the Star Compass, and that information points to the city though, then maybe that is where our path leads. Knowing not everything gets wrapped up is nice in the sense that I don't think they'll try to rush everything, but it also makes it hard for me to guess where things cut off. And so, on that note, here is my final speculation about where things end. I don't think they meet Liza next time. Either they learn she is dead, or they get some clue about where she actually is, which extends the scope of their journey still further. If I'm wrong, and they do meet Liza, though, it will be because it's the jumping off point to pursue some even greater mystery that she is wrestling with that compels her onward. I'm unsure what that means in context of sending her journal and whistle and the message to the surface. I guess there's some outside chance that she is even a prisoner in that city herself. But as mysterious as she has been this whole time, and how much larger than life, I think it makes more sense for her to remain this great unknown even at story's end. Some further clue to her fate uh, makes sense, but eliminating the mystery of her entirely doesn't feel right. Unless there is something about her fate that I just lack the imagination to guess, I suspect she remains an enigma that draws Rig and Rico onward. So that is it. I am impressed by the number of ways this final episode could go. So much of the ontological mystery of the series remains intact even now, and I think most of it will remain so. I have no idea how they are going to wrap up a fraction of the things we've talked about, but I also have no idea how they could have come this far and done so well without a good plan for this finale. We will see just how they pull it off next time. Okay, so just figured out that the final episode is a double episode. I'm not going to go back and rewrite and reshoot any of that though. Um, I probably would speculate differently, uh, but whatever. Uh, mostly, I am really excited now. Like, so much more is possible for the finale. But, uh, this is probably going to take me a minute. Um, finales will probably always be a little more involved, but a double-length one... <laughs> uh, I better get started. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.